Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and I am in London today. It is a beautiful sunny day at the end of September, which is surprising, but very much welcome. I'm here to film a new 10-part series on covert and secret warfare, so keep your eyes open for that. But those of you who regularly listen to the podcast, well, you'll know that we have covered Napoleon a lot. The life and the death and the key battles. So we thought we'd rectify a little bit of a historical imbalance and cover the life, career and death of Wellington. Now, Wellington died on the 14th of September, 1852. And of course, he is known as being an incredibly successful defensive general. But we debunk a few of those myths, looking more at his offensive victories and his outstanding military career. But we also look at those slightly more controversial points in his political tenure, his time as Prime Minister, and of course into his personal life. We've got the brilliant Zach White back to tell us all about this. So here he is, Zach White on Wellington. Hi, Zach. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. You're quickly becoming our resident Napoleonic expert. But saying that title seems a bit of a low blow to the man that we're talking about today. And that is the first Duke of Wellington, who died on the 14th of September, 1852. So for today's episode, should we call it the Wellingtonian era? Are you our Wellingtonian expert? Is that, is that the right term? I mean, I kind of feel, considering my views on Napoleon, that the Wellingtonian expert is better than the Napoleonic expert. But I think that's just probably me being a little bit picky about terminology. But I'm not sure you can call this period the Wellingtonian era, to be honest. Napoleon, it works, right? Because he defines the era. Wellington sort of doesn't. In a sense, what Napoleon has done defines a good chunk of Wellington's early career. And when we look at the career beyond Napoleon actually, that's where you start to see some pretty unpleasant kind of things emerging. I always say that Wellington was Britain's greatest commander and one of its worst prime ministers. Ah, okay. So we have lots to delve into here. So you won't be renaming your podcast then? No, definitely not going to be the Wellingtonicist. 
Wellingtonist? Napoleonicist. That's the podcast. Yeah? Oh, you got it right. Most people can't. Most people just go Napoleonist. <laughs> and then you're left with the dilemma. Do I correct them? No, probably best not. No, no. As long as they're listening, that's all that matters, Zach. Just got to be grateful. <laughs> just got to be grateful. As we are here at the History Hit Warfare podcast, thank you all for listening. Please do keep on listening. So tell us a little bit about Wellington, because I know from learning from you that Napoleon rose up through the ranks. Where does Wellington rise up from? Wellington's a very different individual. Wellington certainly doesn't rise up through the ranks. Wellington buys his way up through the ranks. So now I should mention just quickly before I kind of delve into this, that was legal. And I'll explain about why the British army was constructed in that way in just a sec. Wellington, he's an aristocrat. He's a snob. And that snobbishness is something that runs deeply all the way through him and influences much of his career. He's born into an Anglo-Irish family. And there's this big question about whether or not there was just that little bit of a chip on his shoulder because having a peerage in Ireland wasn't deemed as being as prestigious as having a peerage in the rest of the UK. So there's always that kind of question mark. He didn't say, as is often remarked, that being born in a stable doesn't make a man a horse. That was actually somebody commenting on him, not Wellington remarking it himself. But he was born in Ireland. We don't know the precise date. We have the year, that's 1769. That's not in dispute. The family have always said it's the 1st of May, but we have records that he was baptised on the 30th of April. So go figure on that one. So we think perhaps the 29th of April is more likely. But he's born into a Protestant aristocratic family, not senior nobility by any means. The family title is Mornington, but he's not the guy destined to inherit that title. So at no point was Wellington going to be Mornington because he's a second son. It's his brother, Richard, who inherits the title of Earl Mornington and the two come together out in India, which we'll no doubt get onto in due course. But Wellington, he's the spare. And that's a dangerous position to be in because it means that you aren't going to inherit a lot of money. So you've got to forge your own way. And Wellington didn't demonstrate much aptitude for much, if we're being really brutally honest, in the early stage of his career. He did go to Eton. He then left Eton after a while. His mother famously said that she despaired of her son, Arthur. But he does join the army. Eventually, he spends time in France, ironically, learning at a military academy at Angers. It's actually an academy for equitation. So he learns horse riding and built within that is learning how to conduct himself as an officer and a gentleman, in inverted commas. But then he gains a commission in the army and, as I say, buys his way up. Now, that's perfectly legal because of how the British army works during this period. The commission that you receive from the king to serve as an officer is your own personal property. The idea behind this is that you therefore have financial investment in the force that you are fighting with. And you can sell that commission either as part of buying the next rank up, which is always more expensive, or at the end of your career, you know, you've got that investment that you've made, the money's in the bank, as it were, and you can sell that to somebody else who wants to buy their way into the army and serve themselves. Now, quite obviously, this is a system that lends itself to people who have money. Wellington personally doesn't have a lot of money, but his brother, Richard, who becomes the Earl of Mornington, absolutely does. So he borrows that money from his brother and is very quickly able to kind of buy his way up the ranks. Now, there's a ceiling on that, and Wellington finds that ceiling relatively quickly. So at the age of 18, he gains his first commission. 
But within a few years, so within six years, he's reached the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. Now, once you reach Lieutenant Colonel, you can't buy your way up any further. You're commanding a regiment. Anything beyond that is going to be either based on seniority or sheer ability. And that ultimately becomes the subsequent part of Wellington's military career. So all the money is gone at this point, really, because it, well, it's not gone, but it's not worth anything in the British military. So it has to be down to your metal, your metal as an officer and how you do in battle. So tell us, when does he start to come of age at this point? When does he start to be able to rise up through those ranks and prove himself? Well, he does quite well as a lieutenant colonel when he's in Flanders. For folks who aren't familiar, if you've heard the nursery on the Grand Old Duke of York, that's not actually associated with the Flanders campaign, but it's quite a nice metaphor for how badly the Flanders campaign goes. But Wellesley, as he is during this point, not Wellington, his actual name is Arthur Wellesley, demonstrates a real ability at commanding out in Flanders, manages to make it back when the army is evacuated after the campaign just completely falls apart. But we think he probably observed and learned something about how not to wage war by looking at the anarchy that was going on around him. But it's India where he makes his name. To give you an idea of how significant India was in making his name, he asked to marry his future wife, Kitty Packnam, in 1793. But he was turned down because as a lieutenant colonel in the army, he was not deemed to have a sufficiently secure financial future to be able to provide for his wife. So the family said, no, not going to agree to that. So he goes out to India and India is where he makes his name. He's a colonel by this point. He ends up commanding his battalion at the siege of Seringapatam, which in 1799, that's the, the fall of a great Mysorean stronghold in the south of India and really kind of cements British control in the region. And he's appointed governor of Seringapatam because the commander sees a potential in him, an ability from a diplomatic perspective. And this becomes quite key all the way through Wellington's military career, that he can balance the military with the diplomatic and feed the two off of each other. He doesn't view one in isolation. His kind of competitor for that position was a guy called David Baird, but it's generally agreed that Baird was not the smart choice. Wellington, Wellesley as he was back then, was the smart choice. But for Wellesley, it all changes when his brother goes out to India as governor general. This is an age where who you know is everything. And there's not much better than having your own brother calling the shots of British policy in the whole Indian subcontinent. And they correspond. So Wellesley is advising Richard throughout his time out there, not kind of being as a kind of warmonger. Richard had quite a kind of aggressive outlook. At times, Arthur turns around and says, mm, perhaps we want to avoid this. So Wellesley is not kind of the warmonger in this. In the early 1800s, we see something called the Third Anglo-Maratha War. Now, Richard Wellesley has been quite key in kind of seeing Britain move into a position where it's inclined to go to war. There are lots of kind of complicated reasons that I won't go into on why the war breaks out. But who does he pick as a commander for the British force? None other than his brother, Arthur. Now, that becomes really important in Wellington making a lot of money, quite crucially, and so much money, in fact, that when he offers to pay his brother back for the money that he'd borrowed, Richard turns around and says, no, you know what, you keep it. So a very magnanimous gesture, which shows that, you know, that there's good blood between the two of them. But Arthur, as commander, is able to make his name. 
Now we have a big battle called the Battle of Versailles. Really, probably the last time that Wellington's Wellesley's a bit kind of impetuous in terms of his approach. So for folks who aren't familiar, the battle takes place in a sort of what's called an isthmus, so a, like a tongue of land between two rivers. It's named Asai because there is a village to the north of this kind of tongue of land called Asai. And the Maratha army that he's been chasing, been desperate to try and catch up with, is arrayed in front of a ford. The idea being that if Wellesley tries to cross that ford, his army is going to be obliterated by the Maratha artillery, which is hugely feared. You know, it's a very competent arm of the Maratha force. But Wellesley, he's always one of these people who has an eye for the terrain and an eye for spotting the little details. That's really what happens at sight. So he spots that two villages are basically opposite one another on either sides of this river and kind of looks at it and goes, well, logically, you're not going to have two villages in such close proximity without there being a ford between them. There must be something there. He sends out the cavalry to investigate this, finds the crossing point, And to this day, it's called Wellesley Ford. So if folks are out there, you know, it's still named after him. And so he crosses... But what he doesn't expect is for the Maratha army to pivot because he's effectively outflanked them. You know, he's found this crossing point and he's expecting to use that to just strike at their flank and roll up the entire army. The Maratha army is having none of it. Redeploys with incredible discipline to just pivot and face him. And so you get a very bloody frontal assault on this Maratha gun line. It's eventually successful, but there are huge losses in the process. And it ends up being very pell-mell. Wellington... Wellesley doesn't have any artillery, so can't really fire back. That really inhibits what he's doing. At one stage, the Marathas managed to retake the guns after his forces moved on to clear other forces in the region. So it, it ends up being a case of kind of looking over your shoulder the whole time. And it's a mess, really. It is a successful mess for Wellesley. You know, there's no taking that away from him, but it does shake him. And I suspect that this influences the kind of careful, methodical way in which he wages war for much of the rest of his career. Well, is it true that he never lost a battle as a general? It is true. That is remarkable, isn't it, Zach, really? If you think about it, think about his long military career and where he comes from and where he fights to never lose a battle. That is a mark of some strategic genius. It is. There's a small but in this, which is that he loses a couple of skirmishes. So... There's a night action outside Seringapatam where the plan of attack is actually crafted by his seniors. Wellesley is given command on the night and that night attack goes wrong as night attacks generally tend to do. And it's often said amongst scholars that if Wellesley hadn't commanded this night attack, would probably have just forgotten about it. But it's the fact that it went wrong that we suddenly go, ah, but hang on, look, this went wrong. There were a couple of instances during the Peninsula War as well, and we'll come on to the Peninsula War in a moment. But the Battle of Redina, which is really more of a skirmish, is an example. Pombal is another. But again, these are skirmishes that don't really change anything strategically. And it's just an indication of how tenacious his French opponents are, that they are able to hold off Wellington before then retreating. So there are these kind of little blemishes and folks who kind of feel that praising Wellington somehow undermines Napoleon like to turn around and say, ah, oh, yes, but look, you always say that Wellington never lost a battle, but what about? But it is just a, a what about. It's not really an indication that he was capable of, of losing major battles because every major pitched battle that he fought, he won. And another important point to clear up is that they weren't all defensive battles. 
So there is this perception out there that Wellington was a defensive general. Not true. Basically, people have looked at Waterloo and gone, oh yeah, Wellington sits on the defensive at Waterloo, therefore must have been a defensive general. If you start to tally up his offensive victories versus his defensive ones, the offensive ones actually outweigh the defensive. And the reason he sits on the defensive when he chooses to is because he knows that the benefit sometimes of just letting the enemy come to you. Do you think we view him as a defensive general because it's really hard to make that choice to be defensive and to retreat when you need to? And so being able to do that kind of defines you as a general. It also gives you a certain perception of being quite confident, maybe a little bit arrogant as well, because you have to be confident in your own abilities to know when to retreat and know you can remount that attack and take a victory. And it becomes decisive if you can retreat and then go on to win, then surely that's what defines you. Is that why we know him in such a way? I think you may well be right there. It was one of Wellington's own maxims, actually. You know, a good general knows when to fight, but when not to fight and when to retreat and has the tenacity and the will to actually follow through. So knowing that you probably should retreat is one thing, but actually following through on it is something else because you've got to think about how it looks. This is a, an age where... Generals can lose their commission in inquiries if a result does not please the government or the public back home. So sometimes there is an inclination to fight a battle, to take some glory, and you effectively roll the dice. Now, that's not Wellington's way of doing things. In 1810, he famously remarks that he commands the last army that Britain has and that he will take care of it, which gives you a huge kind of insight into this guy's mindset. He's not one for wasting his men's lives. He will strike when he sees the opportunity, provided that opportunity presents the maximum advantage. And we see that at battles like Salamanca. But equally, many times we see him withdrawing. So after Talavera in 1809, he pulls back to Spain because the supplies are an issue. He's in danger of being outflanked. He doesn't want to be cut off. In 1810, he pulls back to a very thin strip of land north of Lisbon, effectively surrendering a huge portion of the country to the French, having conducted a scorched earth policy during the retreat, back to a series of fortifications that he's built called the Lines of Torres Vedras. Because he's had this mentality of, you know, I can't defeat a 100,000 strong army in open battle with the force that I've got available to me, something in the region of 60,000 men. I've got to find a place to hold them. Best place to do that, that's going to be north of Lisbon. So he has that mentality to withdraw when he needs to. We see it again in 1812 after a pretty botched and pretty poor siege of Burgos, actually. So he does definitely have that mentality, but he also has that offensive spirit. So, yeah, I think the defensive general thing is sometimes used as an insult. You know, Wellington only knows how to sit on the reverse slope of a hill. He doesn't know how to do anything more imaginative. He doesn't have the flair of Napoleon. But actually, this is quite a key point in itself. Wellington never has to fight a Napoleon-style battle. And that's part of the reason why his military record perhaps isn't as exciting in some instances as Napoleon's is. It's interesting to hear you say that he is quite sparing, frugal, respectful maybe of his men's lives, doesn't want to sacrifice in terms of folly. But how does this sit with that scum of the earth comment? Has that been taken out of context? I've, I'm always confused by this. What did he mean by calling his own men scum of the earth? This is a great quote. It is a quote that's used out of context so many times. 
but actually it is a quote that Wellington unquestionably believed. He used it four times, actually, over the course of his career. So there's no question that, yes, he definitely did consider his men the scum of the earth. It goes back to what I said at the start. Wellington the aristocrat, Wellington the snob. He certainly looked down his nose at the rank and file. Now, where does this comment come from? Well, the first one is actually made a week after the Battle of Vittoria in 1813. Now, in the wake of the Battle of Vittoria, in the immediate aftermath, his men plunder the abandoned French baggage train. King Joseph Bonaparte had basically looted all of the prized possessions of Spain, gathered it all together and was basically holding it, ready to take it north to France if you know he wasn't able to hold Wellington back. Because by that point in the war, Wellington was on the ascendancy and was basically forcing the French, outflanking them repeatedly, pushing them back towards the Spanish-French border. The French lose the battle, they have to abandon the baggage train because they have to pull out so rapidly. So you get this huge amount of wealth that suddenly finds its way into the hands of the British rank and file. And the Portuguese and some of the Spaniards who are serving with him, because it is an allied force throughout this conflict. Now, people often say that the scum of the earth thing is about that plundering immediately after. It's not. We do know that Wellington issues orders to gather up any excess loot that the men have got stashed away in their packs. That creates a lot of resentment amongst some of the troops. And we have men kind of going, well, this is my right. I fought hard for this loot and now you're taking it away. So loads of questions there about discipline. But what really irritates Wellington is that more than a week later, you've got men who are absent from the regiments who are just marauding their way around the countryside, still harassing the locals. And in this absolutely apoplectic letter to Earl Bathurst, and it's a private letter, it's not a public statement, so it's a private one. He says that it is quite impossible for him or any other man to command the British army under the existing system. We have in the service the scum of the earth as common soldiers. So certainly a comment that was made in anger, but as I say, he repeats it three other times over the course of his career, once as a backhanded compliment. So he says the rank and file are the scum of the earth, but it's remarkable that we've managed to make such fine fellows of them. And this perhaps is a reflection of kind of rose-tinted perspective of hindsight. So Wellington kind of thinking about the nature of the army that he commanded. He later said that he could have gone anywhere and done anything with that army. It was in such perfect order. So you have a real dichotomy here. You've also got the issue that Wellington kind of knows why his men plunder. And the reason that they plunder is that they're not getting fed enough because there are massive issues of supplies. Their pay is months in arrears, so they haven't got any money to buy the food, to supplement their rations that aren't arriving. And even if they'd got all of their rations, those rations are nutritionally inadequate. So we've done studies to work out how much they were burning in terms of calorific value and the calorific value of the food they were meant to get. And actually they're burning far more than they're using. So they're on a starvation diet as it is. He knows all of this. He's constantly writing back to the British government saying, I need more money. I need to pay these men. They're six months in arrears. Do something about it. But ultimately, he's faced with an impossible situation. He can't let his men get away with plundering because if he does that, that's just going to alienate the locals. So it's a catch-22. He's between a rock and a hard place. But yeah, he certainly believed the scum of the earth thing and he definitely looked down his nose at the rank and file. But also, war is rarely a gentlemanly act based on a firm set of rules. That all goes to waste as soon as you're in battle. And so perhaps there's also an aspect there that you want your army to be certain, well, those on the front line to be somewhat the scum of the earth. 
in terms of ferocity and taking on the enemy. None of these battles were easy battles, were they, Zach? They really weren't. I think there's definitely something in that. Wellington himself once said, well, he's supposed to have said whether or not he did is, is something else entirely, but much associated with Wellington is apocryphal. But he supposedly said, I don't know what they do to the enemy, but they certainly frighten me, which is another a sort of one of Wellington's backhanded compliments. You know, these are dangerous men, but they're the sort of men who can be relied upon to do a task. I think he wages this kind of internal battle the whole way through. I, I do a lot of work on crime and punishment and discipline during this period. And a lot of my work centres around Wellington kind of pushing for more power to punish harder, punish faster. And the government back home kind of going, but we want to do things a little bit differently. We don't want to flog. We want to use other ways of punishing. We want to incarcerate. And Wellington's going, I can't incarcerate these men. I need them to fight. I need to make examples and I need to move on. So it's a really different way of waging war, as you say. It's worth saying that the British have bad instances, right? So the sieges after the siege of Ciudad Rodrigo, siege of Badajoz, siege of San Sebastian, they plunder, they loot these towns, they murder and they rape some of the locals. The numbers have often been exaggerated, but there's no getting away from what they did. These men are not punished for that either, which is another whole different, you know, there's a whole podcast right there on that. But at the same time, you've got Wellington pushing to have these men punished knowing as he's doing this that the French are being far worse. The French are massacring inhabitants in some instances because of a really vicious guerrilla war that's being waged in Spain. A kind of a tit-for-tat bloody execution leading to bloody execution, families being targeted. So by no means would I ever say that the British were angels during this conflict. They really were not. And I'm not going to sit here and apologise for their conduct because it is inexcusable in so many instances. And yet, French policy was to live off the land, and French policy in some instances was to wage this aggressive war on civilians as a way to counter the guerrilla threat. So the British army were probably the lesser of the two evils in the Iberian Peninsula. That's really interesting. I've, I've never thought about that difference in military cultures during that period and how it leads to their well, those war crimes, as we'd call them today, on the ground. And I'm going to hold you to that whole podcast on crime and punishment at some point. We've got to do that, definitely. Imagine a millennium that laid the foundations for the modern world as we know it today, when kingdoms were forged, languages shaped, cultures created. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, and on Gone Medieval, my co-host Matt Lewis and I will tell you just why the so-called Dark Ages really weren't that dark after all. Subscribe to Gone Medieval by History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now, take us through. How does Arthur Wellesley become the Duke of Wellington? So this is a very long story. I could bore you for a whole hour just on that, but effectively it's through ability. And then that's a, a very kind of wishy-washy answer. But Wellesley, fundamentally, if we fast forward from his time in India to the Iberian Peninsula. So in 1808, a conflict breaks out because Napoleon has effectively forcibly removed the Spanish monarch from the throne of Spain and puts his own brother in this place. This is a, a pattern with Napoleon that we discussed in a previous podcast. As he's been doing that, he's also invaded Portugal to force them to join the continental system to basically try and starve Britain of trade. Now, Britain doesn't move when Portugal's invaded, which is you know a really contentious thing because we always like to say that Portugal is Britain's oldest ally, and you know, there are really strong bonds there. We don't move when Portugal's invaded. We move when Spain rises up in revolt against Napoleon, summarily toppling the Spanish monarch. And envoys are sent to Britain saying, look, can you help? What the Spanish really want isn't an army. They want money and they want weapons. But Britain, quite conveniently, has an army stationed out in Ireland that's about to board transports to sail not for Europe but for South America where Arthur Wellesley is meant to engage in a campaign to basically take Spanish colonies in South America and claim them for Britain because of the alliance that Spain has with France up until the moment when Napoleon stabs his ally in the back. So that force is suddenly reassigned, sent to Spain. Wellesley arrives off of Coruña on the northwestern tip of Spain and the Spanish locals, the Spanish hunter, go, we don't want you here, we don't need you, go away. And so he sails further south, lands in Portugal, conducts a very successful kind of mini-campaign against the French army that's in Portugal, wins two battles, the battles of Relitha and Vimeiro, but is superseded in the moment of victory at Vimeiro. Now that ends up being quite crucial because Wellesley wants to push the advantage. His superiors don't. So Sir Hugh Dalrymple, in particular, who takes over command, basically um, negotiates with the French general to form something called the Convention of Sintra. This is hugely controversial because the French are able to evacuate that army. Rather than surrender, they are evacuated out of Portugal on British ships carrying the loot that they've taken from Portugal. So you can imagine the controversy that this generates. Wellesley has to go home to defend his reputation. He signs it, but he signs it because he's expected to do so. He's ordered to do so 
because he's one of the senior commanders out there and his superior is saying, this is what we're going to do. Sign up to it. He successfully defends his reputation. In the meantime, that British force in Portugal advances into Spain and then has to cut and run when Napoleon comes south and launches this devastating attack that cripples a lot of the resistance from the main Spanish armies and starts to chase the British out of the country. And so they conduct this gruelling winter retreat through the depths of, we're talking, you know, late December, early January, through the Galathean Mountains. If people haven't been to the region, it's chucking it down with snow. They're fighting in freezing conditions. They have no food. And they manage to scramble out, just holding the French off at the Battle of Corinna. The guy who commands that campaign, Sir John Moore, ends up being killed in the moment of victory at Corinna, which probably saved his reputation and certainly saves him from a very damaging parliamentary inquiry. But they need to send somebody out. Who do they send out? They send out Sir Arthur Wellesley. And so the story of Wellesley's life in the years that follows is basically the story of the Peninsula War because he spends his time fighting his way across Portugal and into Spain and then back again, basically playing kind of three-dimensional chess against a force that outnumbers him something like five to one. So the French have spread across the whole of Spain, it's important to say, 250,000 men, give or take. Wellesley has initially something like 25 to 30,000 British. He's able to supplement that in time with reinforcements, of course, but then also by completely retraining the whole of the Portuguese army along British lines being paid for by the British and uses this force to initially establish a central safe base in Portugal. How big is that force, Zach, just to let us know? So we've gone from 10% of what Napoleon has to around what? So initially we're talking 25,000, just the British. And then by the time Wellington's really taking the fight to the French in sort of Late 1812, 1813, we're talking 60,000, 70,000. So not huge numbers, but it's important to bear in mind that from 1812, actually Napoleon's starting to take forces out of Spain in order to rebuild the army that he's lost in his disastrous Russia campaign. So the forces end up being sort of equal by that point, maybe the French having a slight advantage. And having established that base in Portugal, he launches this quite daring, actually, attack across the River Douro at the Battle of Oporto, basically uses a few barges to launch his men across, hold a seminary, whilst the French are, get this, sleeping. The commander, Gino, is literally in bed. His cook is making dinner. That's how unexpected this attack is for the French. And manages to launch his men across and then uses them to outflank and, and take a bridge and, and force the men across. And the French have to cut and run, abandon their guns, and leg it through the mountains in northern Portugal and narrowly managed to escape. So having secured Portugal, he then goes on the offensive in Spain. Logical next choice, right? All kinds of issues in terms of supply, manages, has a very fractious relationship with the Spanish general, a guy called Cuesta, over, you know, who's in charge here, and Cuesta wants to do his own thing, and so he marches off in pursuit of the French, and Wellington is going, no, this isn't this isn't a good move, Let's let's just wait. So they eventually end up fighting a defensive victory at Talavera. The brunt of that falls on the British because Wellesley, as he is at this point, deliberately puts the British in the most vulnerable points in the line because he doesn't, rightly, doesn't trust the Spanish to hold. And to give you a sense of just how justified that lack of trust was, the evening before the main day of fighting at Talavera, some French cavalry patrols 
they rattle a, a Spanish battalion who fire all of their muskets, you know, a handful of French cavalrymen, and are then so shaken by the sound of their own musket fire that they abandon their defensive positions and they run and plunder the British baggage train in the process as they make their way through the town. So, you know, <laughs> whilst they at least knew what he was dealing with. Yeah, not ideal. No. So successful at Talavera, but as I mentioned earlier, in danger of being outflanked by forces that have broken through to the north and so has to run for the Portuguese border. Then sits on defensive as he prepares these lines, knowing that another French invasion is coming, which it does in 1810. Fends off, well, really, it's more of a delaying action that he fights on the way down to the lines at the Battle of Bissarco. Bit of an odd one, the French had never have attacked at Bissarco because if anybody has seen pictures of the place Wellington's positioned himself at the top of a ridge that is just sheer you'd be out of breath climbing it let alone fighting once you've got to the top so it's, it's a really odd battle the French fight there manages to establish himself at Torres Vedras behind these lines that I mentioned earlier the French are basically left to starve in the northern part of the country because Wellington's conducted this scorched earth policy should say that Wellesley becomes Wellington as a result of his victory at Talavera. So he's made Viscount Wellington of Talavera. Bit of a mouthful, but that's where the name Wellington comes from. I think the town is in Somerset. I think that's where the title comes from. And 1811, basically to ultra summarise this, 1811 becomes a stalemate as he tries to take border fortresses that the French have taken on the Spanish-Portuguese border. Early in 1812, massively successful in the first quarter of the year, takes Theodad Rodrigo in a campaign that lasts something like 11 days. Badajoz, much longer, very bloody siege, something like 4,000 British troops killed, trying to take the place, but manages to, and that opens his way to the centre of Spain. So the fortresses of Theodad Rodrigo and Badajoz are known as the keys to Spain because they guard the two main routes into the Spanish heartland. Once he's taken those, he's then got options. Manages to win again at Salamanca, and this is going to be a running theme. You know, Wellington beats the French. Sorry, you know, spoiler alert for folks. Um, but wins a, a pretty crushing victory, probably his greatest victory, in my opinion, at the Battle of Salamanca, 22nd of July, 1812. He's pretty much on parity with the local forces in the region. So he's got about 51, 52,000. Same story for the French. And the French are commanded by one of Napoleon's protégés, a guy called Marshal Auguste Marmont. Marmont often gets a bad reputation because he eventually betrays Napoleon when he sees that you know the game's up and decides that there's no point fighting on. But he's a very competent guy and he's on the verge of outflanking Wellington and Wellington being forced to pull back when Wellington sees this kind of glimmer of an opportunity when two French divisions just kind of get a bit out of position and then launches this absolute hammer blow that takes out those divisions and then keeps kind of scything through the rest of the French army. So the rest of 1812 doesn't go particularly well, but I've kind of gone off on a, a rant and avoided your original question, James. I do apologise to your listeners. You asked me, when does he become Duke of Wellington? Well, there are two parts of this. All the way through, as he's managing to achieve these victories, he's rising through the peerage. So he becomes Earl and receives a field marshalcy, actually, after his victory at Vittoria in 1813, which is the point at which the French have basically ejected from Spain, apart from a couple of kind of strongholds in the border regions. He doesn't become Duke of Wellington until right at the end of the war. So at the end of the war, you have a battle of Toulouse. It's debatable whether or not that's a victory. It's kind of 
lots of debates about tactical versus strategic defeats and so on and so forth. The Allies lose more men, but after all of this, all of this is said and done, he becomes the Duke of Wellington. And as we discussed before, will go on to fight the Battle of Waterloo as the Duke of Wellington. So there he is, the Duke of Wellington, master of terrain and actually quite good at offensive battles not just defensive. And you rightly said it, Zach. We went chapter and verse through the Battle of Waterloo in our previous episode on the life and death of Napoleon, a a two-part special, may I add. So do go back and listen to that if you want to hear more about Wellington's role and, well, like you say, it's a bit of a spoiler, but victory at Waterloo. But we won't touch on that today. Instead, this is where I want to move from him as a general, a military leader, and a bloody successful one, through to what he was like as a politician. Tell us, Zach, what was Wellington the politician like? I have a phrase that I keep rolling out when people ask me this question, which might go down quite well with your listeners. I liken Wellington's career after Waterloo to being like the final season of Game of Thrones. And I won't issue any spoilers for any listeners who haven't enjoyed. I think I know where this is yeah, going. Who haven't enjoyed the Thrones series? That final series was controversial, right? There are folks who felt that there were disappointments in there. That's a very good metaphor for Wellington's subsequent career as politician, but also arguably as commander in chief, and his failures to implement reforms as a result of kind of resting on the laurels of Waterloo and having that sense that look. This army was good enough to defeat the French, who were the greatest military might that Europe had ever seen. We don't need to change it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, seems to be his mentality. As a politician, though, Wellington is not a great success. So the one point of success that he does have, in my opinion, is the Catholic Emancipation Act. Now, that is something that's kind of forced upon him. I don't mean to defend the man, but he does become prime minister. He does. You know, let's take that as one success to start with, surely. Yes, but he's the logical choice because he's the nation's, I'm reluctant to say the nation's sweetheart, but, you know, this is the man who led much of the British response to Napoleon. Through, I mentioned about how he's a politician all the way through his time in the Iberian Peninsula. He's negotiating with the Spanish, yes, but he's also sending letters to the British government saying, look, this is the news that's coming in from Austria, from Prussia, from Russia. This is how we need to think about things in terms of a cohesive strategy. So he's always been at the forefront. And so when the opportunity comes, yes, he kind of sucks his teeth and kind of goes, oh, well, I'm not really sure if I can or if I'm the right person. But Wellington's also a lord, which is a little bit of an issue because he can't lead from the commons because he's got a seat in the House of Lords. And that's kind of an issue, but they find a way around that. So yes, in one sense, great achievement to become Prime Minister, but as an arch-Tory, he was the logical person to rally behind as he became more and more political. He's political all the way through, so he has a a seat in the Commons. Throughout his time during the Peninsula War, he's just not there because he's busy fighting out in Spain and Portugal. So he's always had this political element, and the two are closely intertwined. Catholic emancipation is the success for me, because we've got to bear in mind Wellington the snob. Now, emancipation, I think, is one of those moments where we see Wellington's integrity. For folks who aren't familiar, up until this point, there is still a lot of persecution against Catholics. So they're not able to hold positions in government. There's actually a debate about whether or not they should be holding commissions in the army. Actually, plenty do. 
And there are oaths that you have to take relating to transubstantiation. I won't go into the religious significance of all of that, but effectively that oath requires you to denounce Catholicism, which people do up until the moment when an MP is elected who is a Catholic and he turns around and says, I'm not doing it. What are you going to do? And this is clearly a pretty significant constitutional problem because you've got a democratically, and I use inverted commas to say democratically because the system is flawed in this point, but a democratically elected MP who is saying, look, I'm the chosen representative and I'm saying, I'm not taking your oath. What are you going to do? So we get the Catholic Emancipation Act, which effectively allows this guy and Catholics subsequently to have rights in terms of the franchise. The reason that this shows Wellington's integrity is because the king refuses to sign it. He gets it through Parliament and Wellington is massively influential in terms of redrafting it. He sits down with the other really significant Tory during this period, Robert Peel, who's famous for the reforms of creating the Metropolitan Police. I've seen the document where they draft this for the first time and Peel writes something and Wellington crosses it out and says, no, let's phrase it this way. So he's hugely influential in that process, gets it through the Commons, gets it through the Lords. King turns around and says, no, not signing it because the King feels that it undermines his position as the head of the Church of England, which is part of his responsibilities, right? But this is a constitutional crisis in itself. So we've got a constitutional crisis within a constitutional crisis where the king is refusing to sign a bill from his democratically elected parliament. And Wellington says, if you don't sign this bill, you can find yourself another prime minister and the king backs down. So for me, that's a mark of the man and his integrity that he puts duty to the nation even before duty to the sovereign And Wellington was absolutely invested in monarchy, but he understood the significance of this situation to turn around and say, not having that, this is going through. So a round of applause for Wellington there, but I fear that there's going to be another but from you, Zach. I'm afraid it's a big but. And the big but is the Great Reform Bill. Not to go into great depth about politics during this period, but you have a very, very rotten democratic system. This is what I was getting to when I was kind of saying democratic in inverted commas, because the borough system is fundamentally flawed. You have people effectively able to buy their way to an election victory. You have regions of the UK with large populations, you know, whole towns that have no democratically elected representative. And yet you have regions of the countryside where there are a handful of people and they elect two MPs. So there's this huge disparity You don't have universal suffrage, because obviously that doesn't happen until the suffragettes, but you don't have universal male suffrage. Everything is based upon affluence. And so this is a system that quite clearly is crooked and flawed and needs reform. Wellington opposes it. He's this arch-Tory. Think about what we were saying earlier about the scum of the earth comment. He has no faith in the mob. Partly that might be a hangover from the French Revolution, seeing what happened in 1789, 1792 and so on and fearing what could happen if you let the working classes, heaven forbid, have a say. But the point is that he opposes it, and that's what brings down his premiership. And in my opinion, quite rightly so, you know. People often say, oh, Napoleon, great Democrat. We've had that discussion. I'm not going to go there again. Wellington, however, was no Democrat either. And certainly in terms of being on the right or the wrong side of history, when it comes to this, Wellington was completely on the wrong side of history, and stepping down as Prime Minister was the best thing that he could have done. So he not only thought that his troops were scum of the earth, but he thought that the common people of England were scum of the earth as well. 
Absolutely. Well, and that kind of makes sense, right? Because the rank and file are drawn from the common people. So if you're looking for consistency, hey, at least he's consistent. And he benefited from the system as well. He, he wanted more people like him, I'm sure, to rise up through those ranks and to achieve what he did. If that system wasn't in place, well, he wouldn't be in place. Completely. So I suppose keep to what you know. It's often said of Wellington that he preferred talent with a title to just plain talent. And what we're basically getting at there is that when it came to Wellington offering patronage in an age when patronage was everything and, you know, somebody fighting your corner was absolutely key to working your way up. Wellington himself having benefited from that in the form of his brother Richard, he preferred individuals who, yes, were competent and competency was always paramount to Wellington. But if you had a title, you were likely to go much further than if you didn't. I see. Now, he got on with his brother, well, but you said his mother despaired of him. Didn't despise him, but despaired of him. How was he as a family man himself? How was he privately? How did he treat his wife, Kitty? That he actually tried so hard to, well, twice, right? To marry after being rejected once. Absolutely. Wellington's a man of contradictions, and there's no greater contradiction than his private life. So with his friends and with his mistresses, you know, spoiler alert in terms of how that marriage with Kitty played out, he could be the life and soul of the party. Great sense of humour, great sense of fun, liked hunting. That was when he was at his happiest, was quite generous, not only with soldiers who he came across in time. Occasionally you have men who would write to him saying, look, I lost a leg at Waterloo or Salamanca or whatever. You know, I'm struggling. And Wellington would sometimes give them money. So not stingy by any means. But when it came to his life with his wife and his children, just an awful husband and an absent father. His first two children were born just before he went out to Spain and Portugal. So he's absent for the first six years of their life. Now, that's obviously not going to help at all. You know, when he goes back in 1814, these kids, you know, they've heard the legend. They've heard what their mother thinks of the guy, and Kitty worshipped Wellington. Generally, Kitty was quite a kind of needy individual. She had fallen quite ill earlier in her life, and that changed her in terms of her temperament. But she worshipped the ground that Wellington walked on. But that was part of the problem, that Wellington didn't want somebody to worship him. He wanted somebody who could spar with him, somebody who could challenge him, somebody who could be a great socialite. And that wasn't Kitty because of the way that she had been changed by her illness. She was very much somebody inclined to stay at home. And I think the more she tried and the harder she tried, the more she pushed him away. And the two just end up at loggerheads. And so Wellington has a whole string of mistresses very publicly. In one instance, one of his mistresses tries to blackmail him. And this leads to a famous quote where he says, publish and be damned because she's threatening to publish letters between the two of them. And so, she, you know, in response, she does publish because she's trying to make money out of this whole thing. She ends up, in effect, being damned in the long run. So, you know, that doesn't really kind of work out for her. But there's this really odd story right at the end of their life. So Kitty dies in the early 1830s. But as she's dying, Wellington goes to her side. And Kitty almost kind of absentmindedly runs her finger up Wellington's arm. And underneath his shirt, she can feel an armlet that she gave to him years ago. And he's wearing it. And he says that he's been wearing it ever since. 
So how about that for a contradiction? A man who will cheat on his wife, shows her very little in the way of affection, and yet kept hold of this sentimental little armlet? It's an odd relationship. Still sounds like a bit of an arsehole to me, to be fair, Zach. But I'd agree with that. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he can show as much sentiments as he likes at her deathbed, but if you treat her like that her whole life, then that final bit of sentiment doesn't cut it for me, Zach. He's still a rogue and a, uh, well... Scum of the earth? A uh, philanderer. Let's say that, shall we? But wouldn't go as far as the scum of the earth, no? Well, you know what? Yeah, he's the scum of the earth. Good way to end it, Zach. I like it. Now, despite being the scum of the earth, how does the nation react to his death? There's a significant gap between Wellington's time as PM and Wellington's death in 1852. Almost 20 years. And in that 20 years, he's quite involved in affairs of state he just deliberately doesn't put himself forward for the premiership again good job too and because of his reputation as a man of integrity as the vanquisher ultimately of napoleon as a senior statesman as somebody who could be trusted to deal with the nation's problems when issues arise and some of the things he ended up being involved in in terms of heading off scandals were just incredible that's a whole other story his reputation gets rehabilitated. And so by 1852, when he dies at Warmer Castle in September, 14th of September, so we've just had the anniversary, there's this outpouring of national grief. Queen Victoria leads it, in effect, by saying you know, he was one of the greatest of men. And so you see this huge funeral procession that marches past Apsley House on the way to St. Paul's, where he's buried. And it's a vast display of national grief. You know, it's on a par with Nelson's burial. Partly, I think that's because people have had the time to forget about the premiership. But also, I think it says a lot about Wellington's achievements as a commander that that is able to eclipse some pretty poor choices in his political life and personal life. Well, Zach, thank you so much. I can't thank you enough for bringing us these amazing histories every single time you go on. Your knowledge is just endless and boundless, and we're going to have you back on many times again. But remind people where they can listen to you all the time on your own podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's become a running thing of these episodes that I just keep on going. It's almost like I've got verbal diarrhea when it comes to the Napoleonic era. And people will be relieved to hear that most of the time my outlet for that is my own podcast so you know you don't often get it inflicted on you but yeah i have my own podcast the napoleonicist find it wherever you get your podcast good luck spelling it because it creates a headache for pretty much everybody napoleonic ist on the end and then you'll find it you can also find me on twitter at zwhitehistory i also have a website and a forum the napoleonicwars.net so yeah very happy to answer folks' questions and discuss all things Napoleon, Wellington, and everything else in between. Well, Zach, thank you so much. And as you know already, you're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks very much, James. Always a pleasure. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.